Good morning. You can open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Maybe we'll finish this chapter today. Maybe not, who knows. That's the plan. Um, Yes, we are uh, another week in Isaiah chapter 11. And uh, so... Before we get started with our reading, which will begin in verse 10, uh, we can just consider what we've already seen in this chapter. Uh, we, this, is a, this is a monumental chapter. Of course, there, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us uh, for, for teaching and correction and reproof and so that we can walk in godliness and be the sort of people that God calls us to be. Um, but... There are some, some passages of scripture that um, are, are pretty breathtaking, and we want to we spend close time with those, and Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those. So as we began looking at this chapter some weeks ago, uh, we, we started out by looking at who, who the Messiah is, who is Jesus, and we began first of all by Focusing just on verse 1, that Jesus is the son of David. This is who the Messiah was promised to be. That he would be the shoot that would come forth from the stump of Jesse. And we saw how important that is for God's work of salvation. And then we moved on from there to look uh, in the next verse at how he would be filled with the Spirit. That this is the, the promise of who Christ is. And that only Jesus of Nazareth who is the one who's completely filled with the Spirit beyond all measure, he alone can be our Christ. He alone can be our Savior because he has the Spirit in this way. And then we looked at his work of judgment, and we saw how his work of judgment is good news for us, and that ultimately it is also good news for the world. Uh, We also spent a couple weeks looking at what the world of the Messiah will be like in the new heavens and the new earth as the lion and the bear learn to eat straw and uh, the the fear of predators disappears from the world because the world is remade. Well, this morning we are going to be looking at uh, the work of Jesus which unifies his people. Uh, This is is our focus in, in verses 10 to 16. So let's pay close attention to God's word. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal of the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. 
They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. All right, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your care for us and speaking to us. Some of us are here this morning as Christians, and we come wanting to hear from you, wanting to hear your word and your voice. And so we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. Um, Some of us perhaps are not looking to hear from you, and yet you speak all the same. And so we pray that your voice would make it into our ears and would sink into our hearts, that we would be changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are a couple different ways that we could look at this passage. This is a a rich passage, and so what I'm going to focus on this morning is not the only thing that we could focus on. Uh, For example, um, I'm going to focus on unity and the effect that Jesus has on his people of unifying them. Uh, But there's at least one other big theme that we could spend a lot of time on here this morning, and that is Exodus. This chapter is saying that when Jesus comes, he causes a new exodus. Just as he once led his people out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and brought them into a new land, into the promised land, in the same way Jesus himself brings about a new exodus. And this is a theme which appears all throughout the book of Isaiah. And so I'm sure we'll get to that one of these days. We'll, we'll probably have a sermon on that. Um, but today I do want to focus on unity. Uh, now, these things go together. Exodus and unity go together. Uh, to be a people who are enslaved is to be a people who are scattered. It's to be a people who are not united under the one Lord that we belong to, but scattered among many different lords who are not our own. And so we, we turn to Christ and we look to him as the one who will gather us and the one who will unify us. And if you've been living the Christian life for any period of time, uh, then you probably have begun to feel the pain and the sorrow that, that comes because God's people are at times scattered and because we are not united. And what we need to remember as we experience that day to day, as we look at the church around us, and as we look at our own relationships with other believers, we need to remember that uh, this, this scattering, this conflict, this division that we see and that we experience is not permanent. And it's not what should define how we think about our brothers and sisters and the Lord. Uh, instead, uh, we don't we don't want to ignore what's going on on the ground. We don't want to ignore real differences. 
but we also need to remember what Jesus is doing, what he is doing in his people. And if we will remember that and remember how he does it, then we will be able to to live with our brothers and sisters in the way that we ought to. So that's just a, a little introduction. We, we want unity. We want unity. People long for that. You look at our, look at our nation around us, and people are, people are frustrated and angry that our nation is not united. Uh, and this is, this is because unity is something, is something that God has given us a, a desire for. We are not meant, we are not created to be divided and at enmity with each other. We are created to be united. We are created to live under the kingship of Christ. That's what we're made for. And so we're made for unity. But unity only comes from one place. Unity only comes from Jesus Christ. And we will not find unity from anyone else or in any other way. True unity is impossible with all the things that man cooks up. True unity is impossible through politics. It's impossible through psychology. It's impossible through education. It's impossible through economics. It's impossible through being nice to people. True unity is only possible in Jesus Christ as we listen to him, as we believe him, and as we repent of our sins and turn to him. So let's think, though, about how it is that the Lord Jesus unites us. How does he do that? And um, so there are three ways that we see in this passage that Jesus brings us unity. The first is that he unites us with a clear signal. He unites us with a clear signal. We can see this in verses 10 to 12. The second is that he unites us with a clear victory. And the third is that he unites us with a clear path forward. All right, so let's begin first with this clear signal. Jesus does unite us with a clear signal. Verse 10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Verse 11 describes how this unity is brought about when when the signal appears. The signal of Christ appears and his people are drawn to this signal. They are drawn to him as the signal. And in verse 12, we see that when the people are, are drawn together to the signal, which is Christ, when they are drawn together Although they're, they're coming out of slavery and they're coming out of exile and they're coming out of, you know, they've been scattered, they've, they're flung to the four corners of the earth. We see how they're, they're coming from all these different nations, Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros, Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and the coastlands of the sea. That's, what is that? That's, that's like saying they come from North America and South America and Africa and Asia and Europe, right? They, they come from everywhere. Um, but when they are drawn together, they are assembled. They are, they are assembled. Uh, and the language there is that you have this scattered people who are being assembled like a military force. Uh, they, are, they are now organized. They are now ordered. They are now 
um, a body, something that, that you recognize as having power and as, as being guided by wisdom and as being effective. And this all comes about not because of who we are and not because of what we can do, but it all comes about because Jesus is a signal which gathers us together. Now, when we think about this sign, which is Jesus, we need to remember uh, sometimes we talk about the cross as being a sign or as being a symbol. We might talk about the resurrection this way. We can even talk about the incarnation this way. But ultimately, the point is Jesus himself is the sign. Jesus himself is what gathers us. It's not, it's not the cross by itself that gathers us. It's not just the resurrection. It's not just the incarnation. It's all of who Christ is and all of what he's done that gathers us together. And that's why, uh, well, this is one reason why we have sermons, right? This is why I get up and I explain the Bible to you. It's because it matters who Jesus is. It matters what he's done. And we can't just get together and feel really, really good and feel the spirit of unity together about this name, Jesus, if we don't know what the name Jesus means. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Why should we feel feelings of unity about him? We, we need to know who he is if we're going to love him and if we're going to be united with each other. And so that's important for us. He is, he is the sign that gathers us. And, and Isaiah says as much, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, he's the one who stands as the sign and as the symbol which gathers us. Um, we're going to get into sort of different ways that we can think about the sign of Jesus, that it's a sign of royalty that it's a sign of judgment, that he is a sign also of wisdom and ultimately a sign of salvation. We're going to look at each of these. But it's worth pausing for a second just to, just to think about the idea that Jesus is a sign, the idea that he is a symbol. Um, and there are, uh, there are people who spend a lot of time thinking about this, um, who, get, who are all into signs and symbols and how deep the meaning of signs and symbols can be. Um, there's the old uh, psychologist Carl Jung, right, who was into archetypes, and some of you may, may be into that. Some of you may have, have watched videos about that. Of course, this is something that Jordan Peterson's really big into, so if you're a Jordan Peterson guy, then you, you would understand. But, he's, but we need to see there is truth to this. Um, it matters the, what Jesus represents himself to us as. It matters that of all, the, of all the symbols that God could have used, he used the Lord Jesus. He didn't use something else. He didn't come up with something else. He didn't use the yin and yang. He used a man who is crucified and resurrected on the third day. This is, this is the sign for us. Well, let's think about the, the different ways that we see this sign. First of all, is that Jesus is a sign of kingship. He's a sign of royalty to us. And, and when I say he's a sign of, of royalty, what I mean is that when we see Jesus, when we understand who he is, we recognize that he is king. It's, that's, what, that's what it means that he is a sign of royalty. It means that when you see him, you understand it's a king. So 
So, you know, kids, if you're reading a book and it's got pictures in it and you, and you flip the page and there's a man who has on a long red robe who's sitting on a golden chair and he has a big pokey gold thing sitting on top of his head, what is that? What do you think, Alex? A king, right. You, you, recognize all, you recognize from the picture, from the image, this is a king. And in the same way, when we look at Jesus, we need to recognize that we're looking at a king. We're looking at a king. And, and right away, you begin to understand how it is that Jesus, as a sign, unites us. Because if you recognize, if you recognize that a man is king and that he is your king, then everyone else who also recognizes that this man is their king, you are now working with them. You are now united with them because you have the same king. You are united. And so Jesus, when we look at him, we see the sign of his royalty. And this is something that people noticed about him immediately. Immediately, people notice this about Jesus. And th- think about the, uh, the, 12, the, the wise men, right, in Matthew chapter 2. Maybe there are three of them. They bring three gifts. It doesn't say how many there are. But we have the, the wise men, and they see his, his star in the east, and they recognize, they haven't even seen him, but simply from his star, which rises in the east, they recognize that he is a king. And so they go looking for him because seeing his star, they understand that in some way, this king that they haven't met is their king. And so they travel many miles with their gifts to bring to their king. And they come to Judea and they find Herod and they ask, where is the king who is to be born king of the Jews? And they explained, we, we saw his star. And Herod, who also has not yet met this king, recognizes the sign also. He recognizes that this is a king. That Jesus is a king. But notice the, notice the different effect that this sign has on, on different people. On the wise men, they see the sign... And they recognize him as their, they recognize Jesus as their king. And they come to him with all of their wealth. And they worship him. Herod sees the same sign, understands it to have the same meaning. And it stirs up in him hatred and rebelliousness. So that he he even goes about trying to kill all of the children who were born in Bethlehem around that time. And this is what Christ's kingship does. Just as his kingship unites us as his people, it also confirms that there are real rebels. That there are real rebels. And so as you come to him today and as you hear his word today, you need, to, you need to recognize what is your response to him. What is your response when you recognize him as king? He is a sign, and Luke it says that he is a sign to be opposed. To be, to be opposed. He is also a sign of judgment. 
Jesus is himself a sign of judgment. The Pharisees were always asking Jesus for a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign that you are who you say you are. And at one point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Now, what does he mean by that? Let's turn to that passage in in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, uh, again, he's talking with the Pharisees. It says in chapter 12, beginning at verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When Jonah came to the city of Nineveh after his long detour, running away from God and getting swallowed by a fish and then being spat back out again, that that experience that he had of being swallowed by the fish and being spat back out again, that became a sign to the people of Nineveh. So that when Jonah came with his message, which was, you need to repent or God is going to destroy you, 30 more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? That was his message. It was a message of judgment. But what had happened to him in the fish and being spat back up by the fish was the sign to the people of Nineveh. And they repented when they saw Jonah, when they recognized that Jonah himself was not just bringing a message of judgment, but that he himself was a sign of judgment. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, I, the only sign that you will get is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then spat back up, so I will be in the belly of the earth for three days but then I will come back. And that's a sign of judgment. If you don't repent, when you see this sign, then you will fall under judgment. In uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul says more or less the same thing to total pagans in the city of Athens. He says that God has appointed a day of judgment, that he will judge the whole earth, and he's given assurance to all people by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, when we see Jesus and recognize that he's resurrected from the dead, that he is the one who is crucified and resurrected, when we see him, then we see that he is a sign of judgment and a call for us to repent and a, a call for the world to repent. Paul says similarly in 1 Corinthians that the cross, the message of the cross, is a message which is foolish to the world, and yet it's, it's a message that destroys the wisdom of the world. And so when we, when we hear the message of the cross, of Christ's crucifixion, we need to recognize, we need to see it for what it is. We need to see that it, it destroys all of our craftiness and all of our bright ideas, and it leaves us with only one option, which is to fall on our faces before God, 
and to recognize that Jesus is the only way. He is the only way for us. Paul says in Galatians 6 as well, um, he says that the, the word of the cross, that it's, it's through the, the word of the cross, that the gospel, he, he, that he, this is kind of an odd saying, but he says, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. What does that mean? What does that mean? The world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. I think what he means is that in, in Christ, when we see Christ for who he is, we recognize that the world is under his judgment. We recognize that the world is under his judgment and it completely changes our relationship with the world. But not only that, when we speak the word of the cross, when we talk about the gospel, we become crucified to the world. We become like men condemned to the world. Um, And you can see that even in how uh, Christians, ever since the time of the apostles, even the name Christian is a kind of condemnation. Uh, it's, it's a way that the world condemns those who have, who have repented and turned to Christ. We'll get into that a little bit more. But you can see then how Jesus, as a sign of judgment, also unites his people. Because we are united in repentance. We're united in, in recognizing that we are sinners. We're united in recognizing that he is king and we need to turn to him. We need to bow our knee to him. And so it's a sign that brings us to submit ourselves to him, to submit ourselves to him. Jesus is also a sign of wisdom. In Matthew 12, right after the verses we just read, um, where he says that the, the only sign that evil generation would receive is the sign of Jonah, He says that the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and condemn that generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so we need to recognize when we look at Jesus, we recognize in him all of the wisdom of God, all of the wisdom of God, which destroys our own wisdom. Isaiah 11 says, that when the Messiah stands as a signal for the peoples, that the nations turn to him and inquire of him. They recognize, they see in him, they see in the cross that their own wisdom has been destroyed. And so they turn to him as being the only source of wisdom. And of course, people know that they need wisdom. People know this is just a fact of life. You have to know, you you need instruction, you need guidance to go through life. Life demands wisdom. And so, so much of our life is spent looking for wisdom, trying to find a way, trying to find what is the right way to live my life. This is where the whole whole discipline and uh, idea of philosophy comes from, not to sit around and think really obscure thoughts about things that we don't understand. But the the basic idea of philosophy is, how should we live? How can we live? You turn to the wisdom literature of the Bible, and it's also aimed at this question. 
How should you live? How can you make it through life? How can you walk the path of life and not be destroyed by your own foolishness? Jesus is the sign of wisdom, a greater wisdom than Solomon had. The Queen of Sheba came to Solomon and she saw in all of his wealth, in all of the the organization of his kingdom, she saw in the, the the way that his administrators ran the kingdom, she saw in the, the justice of how he judged cases and all these things, she saw that Solomon had wisdom and he could answer all of her questions. She brought all of these questions and she was inquiring of him. And yet Jesus says to his own generation, something greater than Solomon is here and you won't inquire. You won't inquire. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that, that we do impart wisdom. Even though we, we reject the wisdom of the world and we, um, we know that the cross destroys the wisdom of the world, at the same time, there is wisdom. He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And when we see him, we recognize him as that. And we, and we turn to him and we inquire of him. And this is what the world does when it finally sees him for who he is. He is also a sign of salvation. Jesus is also a sign of salvation. And something that's interesting here is that when we... When we look at Jesus himself, when we look at his death and his resurrection, we see that he is salvation because he himself is saved from the power of death. He was crucified. He was brutally killed. He was brutally murdered by unjust men. And yet he is saved. He is raised up. He becomes king. But as well, because his people are united to him, Because we believe in him and we are brought to him, we are assembled to him and united to him, we also become a sign of salvation. And this sign of salvation, which is seen in the church, can, can, like the sign of his kingship, have two effects. It It can turn people off. And make people want to run away, right? It can, it's like a smell that people want to get away from because it's a nasty smell. Or it can be like a smell that gets you out of bed in the morning, right? It's the bacon and the coffee that makes you, that makes you see that life is worth living. This is what the gospel is for people. One or the other. Think about the, the Gerasene demoniac. Jesus rescues from being oppressed by demons. And after he heals this man, the people from the town 
come out to look at him. You know, this is a guy that they've known for years who's been outside town, who's been this crazy man, who's been harassing people, and who's clearly in the power of evil spirits. And yet Jesus heals him and puts him in his right mind, and they see him for the first time fully dressed. They see him sitting there having a conversation like a normal man. And the people of that town, when they see that, when they see the salvation that, that Jesus worked in this man's life, become terrified. And they beg Jesus to go away from them. They, they beg Jesus to go away from him. And at the same time, why does Mark put this account in his gospel? Why does he tell us, you know, if this is such a terrifying thing, why does he tell us, that Jesus healed this demoniac. It's so that we would not do what the people of that town did. It's because some people, they see Jesus is the one who can heal like this. And they are drawn to him. They want to come closer to him. And Jesus says that this is, this is how he works. He heals Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead and calls him out of the tomb. And the first reaction of some is to worship God. To recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And so many of the Jews who saw Lazarus raised from the dead go around and they're telling everyone about this amazing Savior, Jesus. But then you have the rulers in Jerusalem who are bent on destroying Jesus. And now that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, they, they have another man that they're going to add onto their hit list. They, so they, they actually begin to plan to kill Lazarus as well. And it's because Lazarus is a sign. He's a sign to the world that Jesus is the Savior. But Jesus says a few verses later in, in chapter 12, verse 32, he says, when I am lifted up, I will gather all people to myself. So he, he teaches us, and we see, we see in the church around us that when Jesus is lifted up, not when our ideas are lifted up, but when Jesus is lifted up, he unifies his people, and all nations are gathered to him. This, uh, this, can, this means that we take on a new identity. We become a new kind of people. Um, in Acts chapter 11, it describes the church in Antioch. And it says that it was in Antioch where the Christians were first called Christian. That's where they were first called Christian. Now, what we might think like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's the place where Christians are first called Christian. I guess that's why we're called Christians, right? But one of the things that's really important there is that the, the term Christian is not one that's used very often in the New Testament. And the reason for that, I think, is because the term Christian was actually a, a term for a crime. And wh what I mean by that is not that before Christians came about, there was a crime called being a Christian. But, but Christians became a thing, and they labeled us Christians to describe what our crime was. That our crime is following Jesus. That our crime is following a different king. And this, is, uh, this has to do with why Peter says in his letter, uh, in 1 Peter, 
that if anyone suffers as a Christian, he shouldn't be ashamed of that. And what he's saying is, there's suffering that as a follower of Christ you will have. And people, people will not just say, oh, you're suffering, that's bad for you. But people will say, you're suffering because you're a Christian. You're suffering because you're doing something wrong. And you deserve that. You deserve to suffer because you are a Christian. And Peter says, yes, you are suffering because you're a Christian. That is nothing to be ashamed of. Of course, if you suffer as a meddler, if you suffer as a murderer or as a liar, then yes, those you know, liars and murderers and meddlers deserve to suffer. But to suffer as a Christian, that's something that we thank God for. Because in it, when we bear that name of, of Christian in our suffering, we are becoming a sign of Jesus' salvation to the world. He is a signal which unites. And when the world sees him, when the nations see him, they are drawn to him and united to him. Secondly, Jesus also unites with a clear victory. In other words, Jesus is not just a symbol. He's not just a symbol. He is a victor. He doesn't just mean something. You know, you can, he does mean something. When we look at Jesus, when we understand who he is, then we understand that he means something. And that does change us. But at the same time, He's not just a symbol. You know, people have been changed by symbols. People have been changed by the symbol of the yin and the yang. But unlike mere symbols, Jesus acts. Jesus is a king. Jesus goes to war. Jesus defeats his enemies. Jesus reigns over us. And so he unites us with a clear victory, a victory over the old problems that have plagued us from the beginning. Some of these problems are within the church, and some of these problems are outside of the church. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. I'm sorry, in verses 13 and 14, he says, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. Now, when you think about the people of God in the Old Testament, one of the most frustrating and terrible things that happened to them before the exile was that they were divided. They weren't united. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, the, the nation splits into two pieces. And, and they're, they're never really fully united again after that. You have Israel and you have Judah. You've got Ephraim and you have Judah. And so they are at odds with each other constantly. And yet Isaiah says, at a time when they were still at odds with each other, Isaiah says that there will come a time when this division in God's people will be done away with, and the people will at last be united. And he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't 
go through the whole, you know, who's right, who's wrong. Is, you know, Judah's not as bad as northern kingdom of Israel, or, you know, maybe in some ways Judah's worse. You know, he doesn't get into that. He just says, when the Messiah comes, he will unite the people of God. He will unite the people of God. He will gather into one all the people of God. This is something which happens now, but also has not yet happened fully. It happens now, but it's not yet happened fully. Um, Now we do see unity in the church. We see people who believe the same gospel as us. We are able to call one another brother and sister. And at the same time, more and more today, we look around us and we see division in the church. And this has been going on for a long time. Sometimes people look back to the years before the Reformation and they say, oh, you know, Reformation, we needed that. But man, if only we had the unity of the church that existed before the Reformation. But in some ways, in some ways that's true. In some ways, it's just a, uh, it's just a mirage. I mean, the, the church back then was divided. You still had the Eastern Church and the Western Church, and they were at each other's throats. And you had, uh, even, even under the Roman Church, you still had divisions. You still had fierce controversies that, that embroiled the church, and you had big disagreements between people. And people still hadn't worked out. You know, we think, oh, before the Reformation, it was all Roman Catholic. Really, before the Reformation, the things that make Rome, Rome today hadn't been settled. Uh, they were settled because of the Reformation. So there's, there's problems there. But, but with Jesus, we do begin to experience a real unity today. And at the same time, we are looking forward to a greater unity. Now, this begins inside of us. It begins inside of us. Psalm 86 says, as part of its prayer to God, unite my heart so that I may serve you. Unite my heart so that I may serve you. And what we find is that throughout Scripture, there's this idea that, and it's one that we know well as Christians, that that our hearts often are divided. It's not just that the church is divided. It's not just that our families are divided. It's that my heart is divided. And my heart can't make up its mind. And my heart is arguing inside and is noisy and is at war. But when we come to the Lord Jesus, Jesus is able to do something new. He's able to unite our hearts. He's able to give us peace on the inside so that we may serve him. He's able to unite our hearts so that we're not going down the path of sin, the same path that we've been going down in the past. He's able to unite our hearts so that we are not going down the path of error and mistake and folly. Jesus unites us inside, and he unites the divisions in the church. Galatians 3 talks about this, how in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. These are two big divisions, but in Christ, these divisions are done away with. Now, to an extent, one day perfectly. As well, there is victory over the old problems that are outside. 
the old problems that are outside, our old enemies. These are done away with. It's interesting that um, Isaiah specifically mentions Edom and Moab and Ammon. Uh, It's interesting because these are nations that God told Israel they could not take their land away. You know, when God brought Israel into the promised land, he he told them, you're going to take this land, but you can't take the land that the Edomites have, and you can't take the land that the Ammonites have or that the Moabites have. You have to let them keep their land. And yet, although God told his people, here's your land and there's their land, don't go over there and take it, there are times when Edom and Moab and Ammon become enemies to Israel. You can think about in Second uh, Chronicles Chapter 20, uh, Jehoshaphat is king, and in these three nations are united against Judah to come and destroy them. And Judah prays to God and says, God, why are you letting this happen? You, you told us when we came in that we couldn't take their land, and we didn't take their land, and yet now they want to destroy us. And so uh, in the same way, we can see sort of the same problems that, that face us. Um, there are, there are people we have been at peace with. We have treated them well. We have been kind to them. We have respected them. And yet they come along and they act as though they want to just get rid of us. They want to just get, be rid of the church. They want to be rid of our witness. They want to be rid of our presence in the world. Or maybe just our presence in New York State. You know? <laughs> It would be easy to just leave, wouldn't it? Jesus will give you victory over the enemies outside the church. You will see a measure of that today. You will see a measure of that in your life. But you will not see it perfectly yet. We are at war in the church with powers and principalities. That doesn't mean that we are at war with Andrew Cuomo, but it does mean that we are at war with the spirit that is at work and those around us. We are at war. And at the same time, Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ has triumphed over these powers and these principalities. He triumphed over them on the cross. And there will come a day when all of these powers and principalities will be bound and thrown into the lake of fire. Paul says, Jesus Christ will have you step on Satan's neck. Now victory is necessary for our unity. If there is no victory we will be scattered. In other words, we will be defeated. But with Jesus, we have victory. We have a definitive victory already in the cross and in the resurrection. We know who is king. We know who is ruling over this world. And we also have the promise that there will come a day when the powers that are at work around us that are opposed to Christ and that are opposed to us will be completely removed.
Finally, Jesus unites us with a clear path. He gives us a path forward. You know, if you're, uh, if you're going to Atlanta, you need, you need a road to get there on, unless you're Sherman, in which case you make your own road. Um, but you need a path to get there. And when you're on the path, you are on the path with others. You are traveling together. And the path unites you. You have a common destination. And because you have a common destination and a common path, you are united with others. We are on our way to the new heavens and the new earth to stand before God. And because we have that destination that we are headed for, Jesus has given us not just a destination, but a way to get there. He's given us a way to get there, and that unites us. Now, the path that Jesus has given us is not a path that has no obstacles, right? When Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't have a path with no obstacles. They had a path with an ocean in front of them, and they had a path with a desert in front of them. When God called Paul and told him that he was going to go to Rome, he didn't give Paul a trip to Rome with no obstacles. He gave him a trip to Rome that involved being arrested and being abused and being falsely accused and narrowly avoiding assassination. He gave him a path to Rome which involved being shipwrecked and being sidetracked. But he gave him a clear path to Rome. And the obstacles that were in the path were overcome through the power of Christ. Jesus will give you obstacles in your path. He will give us as a church obstacles in our path so that through his power and through his wisdom, the obstacles will be overcome. Okay, We do not have clear sailing ahead of us, but we have safe sailing ahead of us. We do not have a clear path that's all completely paved for us, but we have a path which is clear in that we will always be able to find our way. Jesus will give us his word, and that will be a light for our feet. Maybe we won't have street lights lighting up the whole path all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, but we will be able to get there. He will make a way for us. It will not be a path that we get to set for ourselves. If you want to go to Atlanta, uh, if you're old-fashioned, you get out your atlas, and there are different ways you can get there, right? You can take the interstate, you can avoid tolls, etc. Paul said he wanted to go to Rome. He said that to the Romans. He said, I hope to come to you. He did not get to Rome, I am sure, in the way that he was thinking. It was not the path of his choosing. He thought he would go to Rome in the same way that he'd been to Ephesus. But instead he went in chains. And it is the same for us. God has given us a destination and he has come up with the path that will get us there. It may not be the path that you would choose for yourself. In fact, I can guarantee you it's not the path that you chose for yourself. At the same time, as we talk about obstacles... Obstacles are not just circumstances, poverty, frustrating work, something like that. 
being thrown into prison. That would be an obstacle. But obstacles can also be people. Sometimes people are what get in the way. Paul says in Romans, uh, right at the end of the book, he says, I, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There are people who get in the way of the church in serving Christ. There are people who will get in your way and who will be, become a stumbling block to you. At the same time, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the servant of God must not be quarrelsome, but must reason with people so that perhaps they may be brought to repentance. When a person becomes an obstacle to you, there are times when you need to get away from them. There are also times when you need to not be quarrelsome, but reason with them from the scriptures so that perhaps they may be brought to repentance and changed. In other words, when obstacles come up, God gives us a way to deal with those, even if it's a person. God gives us a way to deal with the obstacles. And we need to remember the graciousness of God and how he often deals with obstacle people. Take Paul, for example, who wrote these words. He was an obstacle. He was going around throwing people into prison because they were Christians. And God changed him. God threw him off his horse. Jesus revealed himself to him. And he became a different kind of man. Every valley will be exalted. And every hill brought low. God will make a clear path for you. He gives us a path to follow. What is that path? What is the path that he gives us which unites us? What is this way that will lead us across rivers and sandals? What is this way that becomes a highway from Assyria? What is this path out of the wilderness and out of exile? It is the path of the cross. If any man come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Jesus gives us unity by calling us to follow him. And if you are following him, you will have unity with everyone else who follows him. This is the way of the cross. And he will bring you to your destination. Just as Paul got brought through the shipwreck and he made his way to Rome, and he made his way ultimately to the side of God in heaven. So too, if you will follow him, if you will follow the clear path that he's given you, he will bring you to be with him, and he will give you the unity that you long for. This is our king. This is our signal. This is our banner. This is our victory. It is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for uh, this word and how we find in it our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray that um, you would unite us, that you would continue your work to unite us as a congregation, and that you would continue your work to unite your church, which we see around us often divided and in conflict and confusion. We pray that you, Lord Jesus, would reign over your church in such a way that the confusion and error and sin which has divided us would be done away with. In Jesus' name, amen.